Hello and welcome again to Red Hacks, your favorite show on journalism, socialism, and being a journalist in a neoliberal world. My name is Jonna Romero, and I have the pleasure of hosting these conversations, which have so far included New Statesman Assistant Editor George Eaton, renowned photojournalist Jess Hurd, and veteran journalist and prominent author Paul Mason. If you'd like to give those episodes a listen, please visit soundcloud.com slash forward Paul Theory Other. You can find them all neatly filed under a playlist named Red Hacks. And if you want to make sure you don't miss a single episode of this show or the regular Politics Theory Other podcast, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or Acast. First, the disclaimer, we are recording in our guests' living room, so if you hear any background noise, that's just the comings and goings of life in London. I must say, I am a little terrified of today's guest because while she's utterly, utterly lovely, she has a reputation for making exhaustive notes for her own podcast, so I'm feeling extremely vulnerable looking at my dodgy scribbles on my notebook and iPad. I'm speaking, of course, of writer and filmmaker Julia Jakes, formerly a columnist for The Guardian and The New Statesman, which were experiences that will surely feature heavily in this conversation, and for which she got nominated for the Oral Prize in 2011 for her transgender journey, Guardian Blog. She's also published in a series of other renowned titles, such as the London Review of Books, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Granta and Freeze, as well as the author of the much-loved 2015 verso book, Trans, a Memoir. She's also, of course, as mentioned, the host of her fantastic podcast, Sweet 2 on 2, on Resonance FM. Juliet, I'm really terribly grateful for you coming on Red Hacks. It's an enormous pleasure. Absolutely. Great to be here. So, as usual, we'll start off with a kind of introduction to how you got into journalism. Uh, you started your uh, Guardian column in, was it 2009? 2010. Uh, 2010. 10. And, um, but was that the first step into mainstream journalism, or had you been? It was my first substantive step into mainstream journalism. I'd actually been a freelance journalist since 2003, but it hadn't been... Um, something I'd pursued as a career. I'd been living in Brighton all that time. Um, so I'd written mostly for a magazine called Film Waves, which was a magazine devoted to independent and avant-garde film and to artist film and video. Uh, so I wrote a lot for them between 2004 and 2008 when the magazine uh, disappeared, along with most of the other places that I occasionally contributed to in a big wave of Arts Council cuts at the beginning of that year. Uh, really, I hadn't actually... I hadn't planned to be a journalist. It wasn't really the thing I sort of dreamed of going into. Um, I actually really was, at the time, was trying to write plays, screenplays, script, short stories, more creative types of writing, um, and working in various office jobs in Brighton. Uh, and journalism was very much kind of plan B for me. It was a way I saw of potentially doing something that I found interesting and saying things that were useful um, but my main aim with journalism really was to find a way of sustaining um, a creative writing practice through doing something that I thought I'd be good at and would find interesting enough. Um, I did only really ever tried to get one staff writing job, which was I got interviewed for a film criticism job at Time Out in 2008. Um, didn't get that job and um, my life got sort of overtaken by other events. I've been you know, through my mid-twenties. Uh, I'd been moving moved towards gender assignment, which um, was was quite a time-consuming thing. Uh, when I first started, uh, a good friend of mine, a novelist, 
musician called Joe Stretch, who I'd known since university, he actually suggested to me, we were talking on the phone and I was just telling him about the first few weeks of, of living full time as, as Juliet. And Joe just said, look, you should pitch a blog to The Guardian that bite your hand off. Um, and I just laughed and said, well, you know, because it, it seems a really obvious idea when you put it like that. But of course, I was so close to my own life that I couldn't see it with that sort of mm. outsider perspective to say, oh, yeah, you should write about it. That's a good idea. But yeah, of course, it made sense. And I'd been writing about trans issues more and more for smaller publications in Brighton and Hove for the previous couple of years. So Joe said, you should pitch this blog. And I said, Joe, do you have any idea what The Guardian's record on trans issues is like? And Joe said, no. And I said, it's it's dreadful. It's really, really bad. Uh, and Joe said, well, all the more reason to do it then. Mm. Uh, and that was all the persuading I needed. So through a friend of mine um, who was a sub-editor there, I managed to find my way to the editor of the Life and Style section, a woman called Rachel Dixon, who was the acting editor at the time. And she commissioned three, she basically liked the idea, and she commissioned three blog posts to set up a potential series. Uh, the first one to cover my childhood and realising that I was gender dysphoric. And the second one would cover my early to mid-twenties, I was 27 at the time, and, you know, realising that I was, you know, moving towards transition and working out how to manage my gender identity. And then the third one would cover my first week after coming out as transsexual. Mm. Um, and I think they let me do that because it would be cheap. You know, they pay like £90 per blog post. So it's uh, just one online then? It was just online, yeah. It wasn't in the paper. I mean, I think it needed to be... Well, it needs to be primarily online. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but, you know, it was it was, it was was very low risk for them, actually. You know, they commissioned these three pieces. If they liked them, they run them. Then great. They could stop it any time they wanted. If they didn't like them, they paid me a kill fee. It probably been about £200. And so be it. As it happened, they really liked the first and the third piece that I wrote. The second one, um, which, like I said, dealt with my early to mid-twenties, wrote quite a lot about my experiences with LGBT politics and this tension between this quite liberal assimilationist approach, which was very dominant at the time, and this more sort of radical approach where you were trying to link queer activism to, you know, things like um, migrant struggles, mm. wider campaigns against racism and for socialism, rather than letting a strain of activism that had emerged from this very radical context in the 60s and 70s be completely consumed into this neoliberal agenda, which was what had happened to it. Um, they didn't like that piece so much, and they asked me to make the politics sort of subservient to the personal side of the writing. Mm. And initially that really annoyed me, but I rewrote the piece so that the politics were in the subtext more so than than being very overt, although they were they were still there. Um, and that made the series work, I think. Um, so they ran the series from there and they they ended up letting me write, I think, about 30 entries. As time went on, you know, I was able to cover more of the political issues around transsexual and transgender living through the framework of this personal journey. I think, again, because the editors didn't really know an awful lot about the subject, and it seemed to them that I did. I mean, it wasn't going disastrously badly. People seemed to like the series. Um, you know, I think they just sort of let me get on with it. So I did, you know, one one entry on transitioning in the workplace and was able to bring in some issues around employment discrimination. 
I was able to raise some issues around housing for trans people. Um, is, with, it, is it fair to say that at that point, one of the reasons why it worked so well was because you're effectively the first or most prominent voice talking about these issues in, in the wider media landscape? I mean, at the time, I guess I was. I mean, there were other people around. Um, you know, I was not completely out on a limb. Um, and obviously lots of people had done behind-the-scenes activism to get to a point where I could do this column. And I know um, Transmedia Watch, for example. So The Guardian commissioned the series in 2009, and then they sat on it for nearly a year. Um, and people at Transmedia Watch were talking to The Guardian saying, your your coverage of trans issues is, is really bad. You're letting these like transphobic feminists kind of completely dominate the agenda when trans voices do get in the paper, it's very occasional, it's in response to these unfavourable terms being set by people like Jermaine Greer, Julie Bindle, Julie Birchall. Um, you know, could is there any way you could you could cover trans issues more positively? It was it was an interesting time because the Gender Recognition Act had been passed mm. in two thousand and four, which was by no means perfect, was a huge step forward for trans people in this country legally. Not so much non binary people, because the Gender Recognition Act didn't really make much provision for people who weren't moving between, you know, weren't Bionic. still identifying as male and female, but it was a start. And there were people moving at that point towards media representation, which is obviously doing us a lot of damage, you know, stand-up comedy and sitcoms and sketch shows frequently use trans people as, you know, kind of verbal punch bags. Um, you know, you had conservative pundits just saying, like this isn't normal, it's not right, and particularly saying, why is the NHS funding this? Mm. And then you had, yeah, this this line of, of transphobic feminists who had come from this 70s radical tradition. Um, and then through these various sort of factional wars in the 70s and 80s, both with left politics and with gay male and trans politics, had been sort of largely co-opted into centrist media if not centrist policy platforms although a bit um so then so, you are setting yourself as breaking through all of that yeah i mean so doing actually doing this personal writing seemed to me as a way of picking a path through all of those different attacks on us because they all basically stemmed from a refusal to acknowledge trans and non-binary people's subjectivity and humanity. Mm -hmm. um, so Transmedia Watch were lobbying The Guardian to improve their coverage, and The Guardian was saying, well, we've got this series by this writer. We don't really know who she is, but we've got it. Um, and Transmedia Watch, you know, were encouraging them to do that. So they eventually ran the series in summer 2010. And they actually asked me the day before it ran, do you want comments enabled on the mm. blogs? And I thought long and hard about that because I knew the comments were potentially going to be very unpleasant. Mm. Um, but I thought, well, first, they can't be any worse than the things that I get shouted at me in the street anyway. Mm. And they're not going to come with the added threat of getting beaten up, which the, you know, IRL stuff did. Um, and secondly, I thought it might open up an interesting space for wider discourse. You know, it meant that other people could add resources, links, share their own experiences. And actually, I mean, I'm really, really glad I did that. That was really what made the series work. I think if it hadn't had the comments open, it wouldn't have worked anywhere near as well. You wrote a really interesting um, piece that you very kindly sent to me uh, for The New Statesman about this whole process um, of, uh, 
I guess for you, it's it's gone almost from the whole circle between why you should uh, be part of, of this discussion, what was what was needed, what you contributed, and why you no longer want to mm-hmm. participate in this never-ending vortex of, of, of so-called debate, which is something that I want to discuss a bit later um, in, in this conversation about, you know, where, where do we draw the lines between debate and an abuse of, mm-hmm. of human rights, effectively, um, or, or hate speech. Um, but so you, you're, you're writing this column for, for or this blog, um, for The Guardian. How do you feel, uh, journalistically speaking, then, both your voice, but also the voices that, that have since uh, arisen, um, have really broadened out the understanding of, of, of trans rights as, as human rights, of trans people, as people with, as you say, subjectivity, rather than just a butt of some, some misogynistic, simplistic joke? Yeah, I mean, it's changed over time. Um, you know, I really thought that, I mean, the Guardian series finished in 2012. Uh, and, you know, because the series did quite well, what I think it did was show to editors that there was a demand for trans people, trans and non-binary people, talking about our own issues in our own voices, rather than it being left to, you know, some of the people I've talked about earlier. Um, and, you know, The Guardian started commissioning more comment pieces where we got to talk a bit more directly about the politics around being trans or non-binary rather than just, you know, this is my story, although there was still a lot of that. Uh, and in sort of, you know, 2012, 13, 14, you did see a real rise in trans and non-binary voices breaking into mainstream media. I mean, not just through sites like The Guardian, to a lesser extent, The States, and we'll come back to them in a bit. Uh, but also, you know, particularly in the States, like Laverne Cox and Janet Mock, um, you know, both trans women of colour, talking very intelligently um, and very openly about their experiences and the political issues that were attached to those experiences in a way that was also accessible. Um, and I think both of them did a wonderful job as sort of trans advocates. I always really like Laverne Cox's phrase about being a possibility model rather than a role model. Mm. Um, because, you know, one of the things that happens if you're writing from a, a minority position and a minority who deals with quite a lot of um, institutional and cultural prejudice is this pressure on you to be perfect. And, you know, this this idea of this role model um, is actually very constraining in that respect. Mm, yeah. And, you know, possibility model is, is, yeah, you can be a trans or non-binary actor or writer or filmmaker or sports person, whatever, without having to bear this burden of representation in mm. everything you do or say. Um so at the time, it, it seemed reasonably hopeful, but I did a history degree, and one of the lessons of that that always stuck with me is, you know, there is this Whiggish or liberal interpretation of history that says that, you know, human rights are this gradually unfolding... This is gradually unfolding process of securing freedoms. Uh, and then there are radical histories which say that actually you have to keep refighting the same battles over and over again, different generations. Maybe they'll take slightly different shapes, but they're fundamentally the same, the same fights. Um, and that was how it turned out. You had Time magazine ran this transgender tipping point article in May 2014, so it's five years ago now. And they were, you know, arguing that the trans visibility movement, trans civil rights movement had reached this tipping point where it couldn't 
couldn't be prevented from making further progress. Uh, and what we've seen since then is a very coordinated, mm. much more coordinated um, attack on attack on trans rights and non-binary rights and an attempt to drive us out of public life, I think, create environments where it's, it's clear that we're not welcome. Um, and this has been done through, really, the, the groups I mentioned earlier. So you have certain um, prominent comedians who have really doubled down on making trans and non-binary people the butts of their increasingly tedious jokes. You have... Um, the name that shall not be named. No, no. I mean, you know, you don't need to know who they are because you're not going to get any entertainment out of them. Um, don't waste your time. Um, so there's them and there are, you know, the transphobic feminists I've talked about. They've um, become much more vociferous, much more organised. Um, and they have worked very, very hard to make liberal and centrist platforms in particular, although some on the left, and I think we'll get onto that as mm. well, um, spaces that implicitly or explicitly say to trans and non-binary people, you are not welcome here, we do not want your voice mm. in these spaces, um, and the reaction we write. Um, and, you know, that has, across the world, um, in some places, in particular where it converges with the reaction we write, also been an attack on like women's bodily autonomy, mm. um, an attack on wider feminist movements, you know, most notably in Brazil. Um, the Bolsonaro government is clamping down on LGBT people more generally. Uh, but Judith Butler, who, of course, her her works Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter, amongst others, have been very influential on sort of queer and trans theory. Uh, Judith Butler's become a particular hate figure there. Um, you know, in the US, um, there have been attempts to stop trans people serving in the military, which I think is partly a reaction to Chelsea Manning, but it's also just something that the Trump administration sees as an easy win in kind of opening the door to further attacks on the LGBT community. There's been talk about defining transgender out of existence. I don't think much has become of that yet, but it's it's something they're trying to put on the table. Obviously here we've seen really bitter arguments about reforms to the Gender Recognition Act, which reached a, a peak in uh, last autumn when the government consultation on it closed. Mm. Uh, you've seen attacks on the LGBT community in Turkey, Russia passing the laws against uh, LGBT propaganda, the Kyrgyz parliament attempting to do the same. I've done quite a lot of work on that. Um, ongoing um, violence and murder of, in particular, trans women of colour in the global south. Mm. Um, um, I think that kind of leads us not, not so much the Bolsonaro uh, uh, conversation, but the question of, of this discussion between um, uh, so-called debate between, and I think I'm already giving away my, my bias here, but this doesn't pretend to be an unbiased podcast, so we'll move ahead with it. Um, the the so-called debate between, you know, the radical feminist uh, uh, movement and, and uh, trans rights activists or in general, people who are not trans-exclusionary feminists or so also so-called TERFs um, by talking about your experience with the New Statesman. Yeah, okay, uh, this, this is quite a long story. So, like I said, I finished the Guardian series in 2012 and one of the things I was really feeling very strongly at that time was, you know, I had this background of writing about literature and film and music and the visual arts and politics and history and, and football and I, you know, had enjoyed doing the Guardian series, found it, a, you know, on the whole a worthwhile experience, but obviously found I was being very typecast. Mm. Um, and I spent a lot of time over those two years kind of blogging and writing um, 
writing about all of those subjects and being quite vocal on Twitter, partly to say, look, my journalistic writing practice is, is much more than this one subject. And, you know, I managed to persuade the New Statesman to add me to their team of regular bloggers, precisely on these grounds. I said, look, you know, I do want to write about trans issues because it's important, but it would be nice to have a platform where I can do that if there's a trans issue that I really feel I have something to say on, but not to be the bound token, to that yeah. and not not to be the token trans writer and not even to be a primarily trans writer, but, you know, someone for whom this is part of my, my practice. And they were happy with that, although I don't think it was quite what they expected from me necessarily, <laughs> but they were happy with that. And for a couple of years, I had a very good time writing for the statesman, you know, around a, a more or less full-time job. Uh, but, you know, contributing to the statement, statesman on a really wide range of subjects, you know, they would let me write on anything from the Commune of Paris to, um, you know, my favourite uh, football player left Norwich City and I, uh, who I support and I wrote a, a tribute to him about the complexities of, of supporting a football club. You know, I wrote book reviews on everyone from Deborah Levy to Nanny Balestrini. Um, I interviewed Janet Mock, but I also interviewed writers like Lars Eyer, um, wrote about film a fair bit, experimental literature, kind of you name it, you know, it's this wonderfully open platform. Um, and I would write about trans issues periodically. Um, one of the pieces I did for them that I was the most proud of was um, a kind of manifesto I wrote, stroke attack piece about the way trans issues were covered in the media. Uh, this was after the death of a trans woman called Lucy Meadows, who had trans was a primary school teacher in uh, Accrington, I think, and she transitioned at work. Uh, most of the pupils at the school had been fine with it. Most of the parents had been fine with it. I think one parent had complained to the local paper. Richard Littlejohn had picked this up in the Daily Mail and written at least one. It might even have been two attack pieces on her. Um, and she was found dead not long after. Uh, the Littlejohn pieces were, were taken down. But, you know, I was so furious about this this human tragedy which you know trans people have been saying for years this is what you're doing to us and you know you will you will hurt us um and you know it made me really angry and i wrote this this long manifesto about the ways in which transphobia was working in the british media and the statesman you know, quite happily let me publish that and what you saw happening over sort of 2014 in particular was the start of people becoming more polarised around this issue, like I said, the backlash seemed to really gather steam after the, the Time Time magazine feature. And throughout 2014, you sort of found that the statesmen started giving more and more voices to people who call themselves gender critical, I think the phrase. Mm. They use, I can't hear the words gender critical without thinking of the moment in I'm Alan Partridge where Partridge describes himself as homo-sceptic. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Gender critical, we'll, we'll, we'll let them have that, whatever. Um, so, you know, publish more and more gender critical pieces where people were saying, I'm just trying to raise the debate about whether or not trans identities are valid. Mm -hmm. And lots of trans people are saying, look, we've been forced to have that debate forever. It's boring, it's unresolvable. It stops us from talking about, you know, issues around like housing, employment, social safety, medical care, all the things we actually need to be talking about. Um, and like Brexit. Uh, much like <laughs> Brexit. Well, I mean, actually, I do think that the the battle lines around trans issues and the battle lines around Corbyn and centrism mm. 
are quite similar. They don't map onto each other perfectly. Um, but there are a lot of parallels there. Maybe I can come back to that. Um, so, you know, the states were publishing more and more gender critical articles. And what I ended up doing, what was particularly frustrating about that was it started to make the states with an environment in which I could no longer have this freedom that I'd had. I didn't want to be someone who was just writing primarily about trans issues. I certainly didn't want to be somebody who just had to have this same argument about whether or not we should exist. Um, over and over again, you know, that that was precisely the opposite of what I've been doing with my journalistic project all along. Like, one of the main aims of the Transgender Journey series in The Guardian was to shift the terms of discussion. Mm-hmm. I thought by doing that through this long, long set of blog posts where I lay out my humanity, I thought, OK, you can answer this issue about the validity of our identities without directly engaging on those terms and then and then shift the terms a bit. And for a while that had been quite successful and what it led to was this, this doubling down. So I ended up writing this very long post. It was actually in response to an article in, I think, The New Yorker by an American writer called Michelle Goldberg, uh, but was very obviously talking to people in the UK. Um, and Helen Lewis, to give her some credit, you know, commissioned the piece um, and gave me as much time as I needed and gave me as much space as I wanted as well. You know, originally I'd planned for the piece to be an 800 word comment piece. Uh, it ended up clocking in at eight and a half thousand words. Um, and, you know, she did, she did give me the space to do that. And the mag, the magazine did plug it. Um, I mean, I had, you know, been quite careful to, you know, not attack other people writing at the New Statesman, uh, which obviously put me in an increasingly difficult position. Um, you know, I didn't really want to have a go at people personally. And I was talking to some of the writers that that were publishing these gender-critical pieces. I was talking to them privately, mm. um, partly to, you know, have this argument with them, but also, you know, just to say, look, uh, you know, are you okay? Like, this is quite an unpleasant environment for everyone. Are you all right? Mm. Um and so then, you know, publicly I would say, look, these writers have always been kind of nice to me, partly to say, you know, well, they will um, they will be pleasant to a trans person, mm. so maybe they can't be as rapidly transphobic as they're being painted as. But also to try and, you know, I could see people getting pushed into a corner and to try and open some space for them to maybe come out. But one of the reasons to write this this long this long piece about the way transphobia in the media functions and the effect it had on me personally uh, and on other people I knew was to say, well, look, I'm drawing a line here. You can choose to put yourself on one side of this line or the other. But also the point of writing a long piece was I knew that one long essay would have a lot more impact than 10, 800 word pieces. Mm. Um, and because of the nature of the internet, it would be something that would remain online and I could just point to that and, you know, unless the argument substantively changed, which I don't think it really has in the last five years, unless the argument substantively changed, I could just keep pointing to it and saying, look, these are my thoughts on the issue. I'm not repeating myself because, you know, that's boring. So when you when you say you were talking to some of these, quote unquote, gender critical um, authors, so it was a friendly interchange you had with them. And, and in as much, I mean, because that, I have to say, like, I mean, A, I'm surprised that you would even, or or in awe, I guess, that given your position, you would even give them 
the benefit of subjectivity yeah. when y- you and other trans women are so often denied that in the first place. Um, but I also get the impression, certainly in the last few years, that that personal interaction has become quasi-impossible. I, yeah, because I the mean, attacks have become very personal. Yeah. I don't know if this is part of sort of the nature of Twitter and all of that, or, or if it's if it's something more, what do you reckon? It did become untenable, yeah. I mean, I had lots of people at the time telling me, look, you're far too generous to them, you shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, increasingly I saw that they were right. Um, and anyway, yeah, it did, it did become impossible. Um, you know, there's only so much you can keep reasoning with with somebody who is essentially saying yeah look i i think you're all right but you know on the whole i don't like your people mm-hmm. um you know there's not there's not an awful lot you can you can do with that in the long run you can try and talk people out of that position but if you can't then you can't uh, and yeah i mean certainly you did see people on twitter becoming becoming more polarized around this issue i mean you can attribute that to the form if you want um you know twitter Twitter is not a great place for nuance or reconciliation. It's not a great place, <laughs> not a great place full stop. I mean, yeah, um, I really, really don't don't like it as a as a form increasingly. But um, you know, ultimately, the problem here is is intractable. You've got trans people saying these are our identities, and transphobes saying no, they aren't. You know, there's not really anything you can do with that, other than you know, try and convince people that the latter position is, is not fair and it's not fair grounds for debate. Uh, you know, you one of them... You most... wouldn't ask that of, of most oppressed groups, to Yeah, no, I mean, it's a function To justify of, their existence. It's a, it's a function of prejudice and it's a, it's a mechanism to... Um, exactly, to, to stop us forming a kind of community, to stop us organising, to stop us having a voice. Um, you know, it's a fundamental problem of, uh, I think centrist if not centrism mm. uh, in particular and to a lesser extent liberals but not necessarily liberalism is to not think about the terms of debate that are being set and not think about whether or not those debates are taking place in a level playing field mm. you know people at the new statesman might have said we want a balance between pro-trans and anti-trans voices in our publication um the pro-trans voices are saying we'd like our lives to be easier and to have access to essential medical care that we need to live and, you know, um, in lots of cases, you know, stop experiencing discrimination, violence and murder. And the anti-trans voices are saying, we don't think your identities should exist at all. Please go away. Um, Which doesn't really seem to me to be a particularly fair uh, discussion. I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who think I'm not characterising it correctly. Do you feel like it was all the more frustrating, and, and since the, this show is about talking about left-wing voices in a predominantly neoliberal landscape in terms of journalism, do you feel it was all the more frustrating, the situation at the New Statesman, because the New Statesman and its authors, for, for the most part, are within the progressive liberal to the radical left, you know, sort of a spectrum that is certainly within the centre-left to the left. And um, and so to find yourself having to have these arguments and have this argument over the, 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 the nature of the debate in and of itself within a space like that feels all the more painful or hurtful, I would have thought. It's not as if we're talking about a, a, a right-wing publication, because, because I was just trying to think of parallels to, to having to argue your own you know, right of existence. And the New Statesman would never posit that conundrum 
to a black person, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would just first open by saying that increasingly I don't trust liberal or particularly centrist publications not to do the things you've just said they won't do. Uh, But, yeah, broadly, um, you know, my journalistic project was all about dealing with transphobia on the liberal and radical left Mm. because, you know, there's transphobia absolutely everywhere, uh, but it's obvious to me that the place to start that fight would be dealing with it in the wider spaces where we could, you know, integrate trans yeah, fuck and non-binary world, struggles you know? <laughs> yeah well i mean we'll deal with them later um and we'll you know ideally we would deal with them within a a wider political framework that was mm. that was the whole point so yeah it was particularly disheartening to have that happen with the states and partly because yeah i had found this this space where i could be the kind of writer i really wanted to be mm. and to get just forced out of that by the generation of this increasingly transphobic climate and you know people increasingly telling me you shouldn't write for them so yeah do, do um, tell us sorry because i did interrupt you how how kind of it came to a head at, at the new statesman i mean it sort of i mean so yeah so i i published this this long article which went viral um which was an interesting lesson because you know editors have been telling trans and non-binary writers for years like look nobody is interested in your political issues just keep it to the personal mm. um and you know if you if you told anyone at any publication look here is an eight and a half thousand word article um written by a trans woman about this conflict between trans people trans trans and non-binary people and transphobic feminists you know, pretty much any editor confronted with that would run out of the room screaming, I think. Um, and we put it online, and I remember some, like, right-wing journalists looked at the stand first and said, this is the least appealing stand first to an article I've ever seen. Uh, and I took great delight in saying, well, actually, it's trending in London, it's the most read thing on the website. And, uh, and you know, and actually, he then commissioned me to write something for The Telegraph um, about Kelly Maloney, the boxing promoter who'd come out as transsexual but also had you know supported UKIP and made quite a lot of homophobic mm-hmm. statements um and so I wrote a piece of the telegraph about her off the, the back of this um you know with with the publication of that article people did it did kind of calm down for a few weeks while people on various sides of this argument thought okay look here is a big piece that has made an impact dealing with this question and what seemed to happen was quite a lot of the gender critical writers sort of looked at it, thought about it for a while, and then just decided they were just going to carry on doing what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I realised, look, you know, I've tried to have dialogue with people. You know, we've tried to find some, you know, middle ground on this, but it's just, it's fundamentally, you know, it's not an issue where middle ground could be found. Some issues just aren't. Mm-hmm. Um that was the last I think I had one I had one more piece published for my regular blog for them about my experiences working for the NHS which was published later but had been commissioned earlier and at that point I more or less decided to stop I published a couple of other things for the culture section but didn't didn't write anything for my blog again and I decided to just quietly stand it down in early 2015 just it became increasingly clear that the states were not going to stop publishing these sort of anti-trans articles um the one that the straw that broke the camel's back really was one that was published uh, under a pseudonym and never a good way to start well the pseudonym was it was only when you got to the end of the piece that it was revealed that the name of the writer was a pseudonym and it basically took the argument of like oh this is like stalin's 1984 um 
you know, you can't say anything now because the trans lobby will shoot you down. And, mm. you know, that that kind of, you know, line of argument that you've you've heard increasingly being used by people on the political right. Um, and it got to the end of the, the article and it said, you know, the name of this writer is a pseudonym. Uh, and, you know, I thought, look, I've spent the last five years writing, you know, incredibly personal articles. Um, you know, I mean, actually, um, Jake's is a pen name as well. But, you know, nonetheless, it's like a name that I was publicly attached to, did mm. public appearances under that name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a very different thing to just writing this piece under a pseudonym. Um and I spent the last five years being a very public face of of this issue, uh, giving away all these very personal things that I can't get back in the name of a political advancement of just trans subjectivity. Um, and I do all of that, and you can cut through all of that with this one piece written by someone who won't put their name to it. That didn't seem at all fair to me. Uh, but, I mean, that wasn't the only reason I... I stood down, you know, I've become increasingly disillusioned with journalism in general, you know, disillusioned with the working conditions, you know, the precarity of it, the very, very low rates of pay for um, for online journalism in particular, mm. um, the fact that I couldn't really see a career arc uh, for me in journalism. Um, you know, all of my Guardian and New States and Pieces were written around full-time jobs, um, working for for the NHS, which I which I also wrote about, um, and so I and your book and yeah and my book. So the book um, the book got commissioned off the back of the Guardian series, mm. but it was that big New Statesman article that let me write the book the way I wanted to mm. because it showed to my editors at Verso, look, I don't have to write this as a just kind of personal woe is me it was hard being transsexual but now I've transitioned and now everything's good sort of narrative and actually I could write something that engaged much more with feminist discourses particularly with media discourses Mm. uh, and people would be interested and the book ended up becoming because I'd already written the more personal side of things for The Guardian um, the book did bring in some of that material but it did two things differently one was to talk a lot more about what my life was like before transition and how I managed the assigned gender because I hadn't really seen that done so much anywhere. Mm. Um, and it um, it felt like a very interesting thing to to write about how I moved through these different identities, but which identities have become available for me through the media. You know, I grew up with Section 28, so yeah. all the time I was at school, Section 28 was repealed in 2003, which was the year I graduated from, from Manchester. Um, so all of my time in public education, um, you know, schools were not allowed to talk about LGBT issues effectively. So I had to find everything through the media. So the first half of the book is kind of finding a trans identity through what was available to me and then often rooting out cultural expressions of trans and non-binary identities but then the second half of the book is obviously starting to transition and the transition becoming bound up with this process of writing about it Mm. um, and how that changed my life and what happened to me in the transition Um, but it became you know from a critique of existing media to a reflection on my interactions with that media um and my increasing disillusion with it. Um, the book was written, yeah, sort of from autumn 2014 through to spring 2015, which was kind of the breaking point for me with 
mainstream media. And the other thing I did while I was writing the book was applied to do a PhD at the University of Sussex in creative and critical writing, uh, writing a volume of short stories that would tell a transgender history of Britain um, through this this set of, of thematically linked short stories. And I got funding for that. So I've just finished that PhD. I've actually got the Fiverr on Friday. Um, but at that point, no you know, I was able to retract from mainstream media. I basically realised that the tactics I've been using, they'd have a level of success. Mm. And I think long term, it will have been a very good thing to have done. You know, I've had so many people say to me over the years, like, look, your your writing helped me realise my own trans identity. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, I must say, like, I think one of the things it did, and I, I remember you know, knowing of you before I knew you. And and what I liked about the series and what I liked about, in general, that attitude. And in general, in fact, we can talk about largely, and I, I do want to talk about at, at some point towards the end of, of today's conversation, about this um, conundrum that we find ourselves in as writers um, between how much is too much in the personal sphere of, of writing, of, of punditry, of comment writing, and how little is too little and so on. Um, but 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 I, what I thought was brilliant about your column was that it really broke away from this morbid obsession with genitalia, right? Like, which is what I think, unfortunately, we have at some points in this whole, again, so-called debate with, with, with uh, TERFs reverted back to, like constantly po- pointing onto someone's crotch. Um, and actually, as, as, as you put it so, so beautifully, brought back uh, just the humanity of being someone who is going through gender dysphoria and going through 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 all the self the process of self-discovery that 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 entitled that that in encompasses um so so yeah i mean from from this whole conversation of your own experience in the new statesman i think it would be remiss not to mention uh, this very interesting case going on at the moment of Catherine O'Donnell at the Scottish edition of the Times. Um, so Catherine O'Donnell was uh, the night editor at the Scottish edition. Um, she's a trans woman. Uh, she had been working for uh, the publication for about 15 years, I think. And uh, she is now uh, suing, I guess, the Times for unfair dismissal, uh, bullying, transphobic harassment, um, linked obviously, and dismissal linked obviously to to her own transitioning, uh, without with a, within a series of complaints in that whole process. And I think um, what it really brings to the fore is because of her own way she has argued alongside her own treatment the fact that the content being published in 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 the times made her feel like it was a hostile environment and and i mean i wanted to ask you if you felt there were effectively parallels um in your own case at the new statesman or in general at at other places you have been where you felt that i mean there's also the case of of the guardian recently publishing an editorial the 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 guardian in britain the british edition publishing an editorial about this quote-unquote debate in which it again comes out with a centrist position on how you know we want to uh, put out a fair platform, a safe platform for for both, but certainly for uh, gender critical women, and um, and how, in spite of interestingly enough, a, a sort of kickback from its uh, U.S. Uh, staff, uh, who obviously are fighting this question on on 
also on a political, national political landscape. And it seems like The Guardian has gone in a sort of similar direction in terms of editorially um, as, the, as the New Statesman. So, yeah, how, how do you feel about this? Yeah, so, I mean, start off with Captain O'Donnell. Like, obviously, um, we can't say too much because it's an ongoing court case, I mm. think. I think it's it is, still in it progress. Um, but just to say that, yeah, I mean, I absolutely recognise that parallel. You know, like I said, an environment was created at the New Statesman where, um, you know, I wasn't being explicitly discriminated against I mean I was contributing on a freelance basis um, so you know I never worked in an office with them I had some contact with certain people there but most of the contributors who were writing the gender critical pieces I only ever met in person once or twice mm. um, so you know this is one reason why I ended up being a bit flat-footed about how to respond for a while because I was struggling to reconcile the fact that the people involved were always you know, impeccably pleasant to me and, you know, to uh, to borrow a phrase that you may have seen in responses to Owen Jones over the last sort of six months to a year, nobody told me what to write. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I was given, you know, in theory, complete editorial freedom. I think the Statesman actually only ever rejected one of my pictures once and I wrote some pretty weird and esoteric stuff for them. Um but I was being given this this freedom within, yeah, as you say, an increasingly difficult environment, an increasingly untenable environment in which to operate it. You know, having the freedom to write about, I don't know, the films of B.S. Johnson or something <laughs> is, is, you know, a freedom not really worth having if it's in a context where you're repeatedly, you know, things are repeatedly being published sort of essentially saying that you shouldn't exist. Mm. Um and it yeah became increasingly untenable for me. So yeah, absolutely, the content that was being published in that space made that space an impossible space for me to work within. And I can't remember the last time I saw an openly trans writer uh, anywhere in the Statesman in their um, opinion pages or their website. And it's not because they've got an explicit editorial policy of not commissioning trans people. In fact, I you know I'm almost certain that they don't and I do know there are people at the Statesman who are not very happy with how this has played out Mm. Um, but you know they've just created an environment where trans writers and trans and non-binary writers just don't want to write for them we're quite networked we've got one of the ways we've responded to this increasing backlash against trans and non-binary visibility which has been you know orchestrated through this bad faith use of debate is we have got much more organized just saying we are not going to participate in these conversations Mm -hmm. and when the gender recognition act consultation was taking place in the guardian um was taking place more generally there were lots of invitations to speak on television shows radio shows uh events at universities i got asked several times and turned all of them down Mm -hmm. um and then I saw one person who I'd had what I thought was a reasonably good faith private conversation about why I didn't want to partake in an event at university, then publish a comment piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks later saying, like, these you know, these nasty trans people are just stifling debate. Mm. Um, so basically equating your effectively political refusal to have to explain your own existence with stifling freedom of speech yeah which i you know i'd already answered these questions many many times in the course of my writing and i just wasn't interested in doing it again wasn't Mm. prepared to uh i mean i really wish i'd kept a list of all the things i'd turned down um some of the highlights i turned down 
an event where Jermaine Greer was being interviewed and I was asked to come and challenge her on her transphobia from the audience. Uh, and right. I said, absolutely not. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. It will look like a plant. Um, it's not interesting to me. Jermaine Greer has been was publicly attracting. Um, I think it was, yeah. But Jermaine Greer has been... I think I know, you know the show you're talking yes, about. Yes, <laughs> okay, we're not going to name it. But, you know, Jermaine Greer has been, you know, repeatedly attacking the trans community for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no possibility of me getting anything out of that exchange. So I said no. Uh, I turned down that Genderquake program on Channel 4 that um, Asaka was on, I think Manuel Bergdorf was on, which had members of the audience just literally just yelling the word penis over mm -hmm. the testimonies of trans people who are on that show. Um, I turned down an invitation to go on the radio to talk about comparisons that were being made between trans people and Rachel Dolezal. I thought, no, not doing that. Um, those are three highlights. I really wish I'd kept, you know, some sort of conceptual writing piece over the years of, mm -hmm. of things I've said no to. Um, maybe that's a project for another day. Um, but, you know, yes, yeah, so with The Guardian, again, you know, they, they used this building up of this conflict to write an editorial where they said, look, we need to listen to both sides of this transgender debate. But then the framing of the piece was was very much through the anti-trans mm. side. Um, trans writer called Jules, Jules Joanne Gleason wrote a very good piece for the New Socialist called, I think it's called On the Guardian's Transphobic Centrism, which I really recommend people go and read. Um, and yeah, like you say, there was this extraordinary spectacle of the American Guardian writing back and saying, you know, we, we are trying to get trans voices in the US. So you had the extraordinary spectacle of the Guardian US, who, as I said earlier, were trying to counter the Trump administration using attacks on the trans and non-binary communities as a way into attacks on, like, women's bodily autonomy and the LGBT community more widely. You know, the Guardian US trying to, to find trans and non-binary writers to make cases against what the Trump administration were doing but found they couldn't find any because they're all boycotting the Guardian because of what the British wing were publishing about mm. trans people and you know this incredible um, editorial published attacking attacking the the British wing of the paper um, that was that was really sort of astounding to watch I mean this was all happening at a time when I was very close to finishing my PhD so I didn't really uh, have the time or the headspace to take part in these these conversations but you know this has again led to British trans writers uh, British trans and non-binary writers uh, boycotting The Guardian I haven't um, I said earlier there are lots of prominent trans and non-binary voices breaking into mainstream media in the middle of this decade and you know they've been very conspicuous by their absence Paris Lees, Ros Caveney, mm -hmm. C.N. Lester, Fred McConnell various others have been very in Sean Fay, been very conspicuous by their absence from these conversations because we we just we just we just don't want to partake in them i certainly feel it it has become exponentially so over the last year maybe two years how as you say like there was a, a period in which we would still in, indulge in or humor the, the debate and then it felt like most trans writers i like i like to read felt this is you know i, I want to write about other things instead of constantly having to justify my existence, which, which creates a sort of health circle between you want to write about things that don't have to do with your identity because you're a writer, not you know, a writer only of that topic. Mm. And then you end up finding yourself constantly having to return or being used as a sort of token, I feel, to write about it because you're constantly having to justify your existence. 
Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly boring to do. I bet. It's very repetitive. It's really unrewarding. And I mean, I find it quite amusing looking at the other side of this quote-unquote debate. Because a lot of the people who are driving it the hardest, it's you know, they don't really seem to talk about much else. Mm. You look at their Twitter feeds and it's just this sort of endless rage about the, you know, the, the trans cabal and the, you know, the non-binary mafia and the genderqueer hit squad and the, you know... Makes you sound very glamorous. I mean, you know, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, transsexual on. politburo or I don't know. Um, <laughs> that is way less sexy. <laughs> yeah, no, probably just a lot of tedious meetings, wouldn't it? Um, but, you know, you look at their Twitter feeds and you just you just see them endlessly talking about this stuff and retweeting yeah. other people endlessly talking about this stuff. Mm. And you just think, have you seen a film you've liked lately? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For example. Um, so it is really, really grinding and it's designed to be grinding. That's the whole point of it. You know, this argument is unwinnable, as I've said, and nobody is, well, maybe they think they can win it. But, you know, the point is as much as keep us in this, this terrain. Mm. Um, I mean, I was wondering now, because obviously, as mentioned earlier, and, and the sort of area of conversation I wanted to end this on, was the, the the perils of, of punditry and of opinion uh, writing, um, because it seems to have become, to my great chagrin, because I I do like opinion writing, but has seems to have become the bread and butter of of modern journalism, certainly in this country. I.e., um, it's given a lot of prominence over, over reportage or or um, investigative journalism or just daily reporting of, of, of events and not to even talk of you know cultural reviews and mm. whatever else um so how do you feel now that you've stopped doing uh quote-unquote mainstream journalism and been able to uh enjoy a lot more of i mean you do so much work for for um arts publications in particular and and how rich that is and if you feel like somehow you you had to give up a certain level of your writing in order to keep your sanity and, and, and just happiness at large. Yeah, okay, that's that's a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, from, you know, for quite a long time I've been very interested in, you know, this issue of, like, writing of the self and the limitations of it and what it does to you psychologically. Mm. Um, and I've always, you know, when I was younger, I was exploring that a lot more in a literary context. Uh, somebody I've written a lot about is a writer called B.S. Johnson, who was a, uh, people don't know him, you should all go and read him and watch his films, but um, British, quote unquote, experimental, though we hated that word, uh, British experimental writer and filmmaker who was around in the 60s, early 70s. And he had this dictum that, telling stories is telling lies and he had this very strong theoretical precept that all novels should only be drawn from the author's own life so mm. you know staking out this this place for kind of autofiction but you know he was quite young he started publishing in his early 30s quite quickly he used all the material um from his life in in his novels uh, and he ended up writing a novel called trawl in i think 1966 which is all about his experiences on a shipping trawler a fishing trawler um, but, you know, he had to contrive this experience in mm. order to write about it. It wasn't like it came organically from his yeah. life. He had to write to a fishing trawler and say, can I come on your boat so I've mm. got something to write about? And the people on the trawler all called him the pleasure tripper. He didn't really you know, integrate with them because it wasn't actually his life. It was mm. it was an experience he contrived. So I was really interested in this this conundrum from that perspective. I hadn't really quite thought of it in the way you're you're talking about as a kind of a broadening out 
of personal experience. I'd thought of it more as um, as a kind of persona. Mm. Um, I got really kind of fascinated with Liz Jones for a while um, because, you know, of the very visible and very public ways that writing about her own life had complicated that life and led her in a position mm. where she you know, had to seek out certain experiences to write about them or was making clearly making herself very unhealthy through intertwining her life and her work in this way. I actually tried to interview her, which which didn't Well you, didn't you have happen, you but. have this conversation with uh Chris Krause mm. uh on Sweet Two on Two and I thought that was uh, I mean you, you go into into great depths about this question of yeah. of how far can can um autofiction Go. Yeah, so maybe if listeners want more on that, then that's the place to go. Absolutely, I mean, I'm with plugging regards to, to here. regards to how it plays out in comment journalism, yeah, I mean, you did see, I think, again, early part of this decade, lots of writers, usually young women, mm. who were writing lots of opinion pieces that, you know, very much drew from their own lives. And again, you could increasingly see how unhealthy it was. You would get people being asked to provide their subjective opinion on something, bringing themselves into the conversation. Um, you know, I, I knew from doing a few of these pieces, I only wrote for Comment is Free a few times, but the turnaround times are very short, like often a couple of hours. Um, you know, the word counts were quite short, so not that much space for nuance or really um, making an idea more complex. Um, you know, the pieces would then get tweeted out, often under the most clickbaity headline mm. imaginable with your Twitter handle on. Um, and would be halfway around the world before you had a time to respond to it. And because the pieces were so subjective, you know, often led to readers, you know, making very ad hominem judgments on the person writing them. Mm. I mean, you know, I've been guilty of that myself. Uh, I've been on both sides of it. Um, you know, this struck me as increasingly just unpleasant conditions under which to work. Mm. Um, and I do feel that with, with opinion and with subjective writing, there are so many places now you can get that. But I feel that better funded mainstream journalists would, or uh, mainstream outlets would be far better off kind of stripping, stripping back that stuff an awful lot, if not getting rid of it entirely, and focusing on investigative work. Because like, I would pay money to The Guardian or another publication if they were continuing to do the sort of investigations that led to the Leveson Inquiry mm-hmm. um, or the um, Edward Snowden uh, revelations, for example, about GCHQ. You know, that's what I want from a publication. That's, you know, I can get opinion almost anywhere. Um, and there's, you know, with first the advent of blogs and then Twitter um, and then various other um, new new online publishing uh, ventures, you know, there's no real reason why I should pay money for the opinions of a, a, you know, a professional opinionator who writes for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we saw in the 2017 general election of you know it's increasingly clear that those people are, are not no clue <laughs> not particularly well placed to tell us what's going on to interpret things in the way that they think they are and um i mean because because i yeah. at the beginning of this conversation you yourself said how and again i just because i just want to bring it back to how you've stopped publishing with those publications at least on that topic and and went into doing far more interesting I, I mean not that what you're writing about was not interesting but a wider panoply in the in context making the whole of your of your body of work far more interesting um into other subjects and and you were saying in the beginning how you know you were asked to uh, make the politics subservient to the personal i thought that was a beautiful turn of phrase um even if already showing a massive problem which is 
where is the space for for the political where is the space for for everything else um and so yes i just wanted to go back on how your experience of now writing other things has has left you to end on a good note you know on a positive outlook outward looking look like i said at the top of the show that i started off writing for uh, magazines like film waves and sort of literature and film magazines and actually that was always what i wanted to do um that was always what i was much more comfortable doing um and I had this line that I used to use a lot when I was particularly uh, enmeshed with these arguments about trans and non-binary identities that were playing out through the mainstream media and, you know, really felt I was on the front line of them and felt I had to respond to these unfavourable terms. I always had this line, which I used to use kind of joking and not joking, saying, I just want to write about video art again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more or less what I'm doing now. Yeah. Uh, so I write for Freeze quite a lot. So, you know, when we say moving away from mainstream journalism, you know, Freeze is mainstream journalism. Mm. It's very much mainstream journalism, but it's mainstream arts journalism. So really what I've moved away from is is kind of, you know, liberal or centrist comment journalism. Mm. Um, and, you know, a part of me does uh, feel, does end up feeling a bit kind of guilty about moving away from from this trans and non-binary media struggle because you know i do i do have the tools still and i have the contacts and the track record to keep working but it just it was just you know it had a fairly catastrophic effect on my mental health ultimately Mm. it completely burnt me out in a way that i've not really recovered from um you know i'm still kind of exhausted all the time and that's not just from uh just or even primarily from from the journalistic experience I've been talking about, but they've definitely been a big part of it, um, you know, have been able to to stake out a place to do work that is much more interesting and and rewarding. Mm. Uh, and again, getting that PhD funding was, was crucial for me because it, it gave me three years where I just didn't really have to think commercially at all mm. um, and have been able to, like, reposition myself. Um, and as well as, obviously, doing the PhD and getting an academic qualification, um... I did spend a lot of time thinking about how I could, how I could reorient um, journalism because now I finished the PhD, I have actually found found myself more inclined towards writing and journalism than going into academia, um, but I've been able to to do it in a way that is is much more tailored to the things I really care about and the things I take some satisfaction from from doing. So yeah, I'm going to carry on doing that. Excellent. Uh- the last question I always ask is, what are you reading at the moment? And God, I honestly, I love when, when people answer, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer. What are you reading? What am I reading at the moment? Um, I think I've got about eight books on the go, which is... Not surprised. Absurd. Um, so I am currently reading uh, Geordie Rosenberg's novel, Confessions of the Fox, uh, which is one of the first um, sort of books by a trans or non-binary author. Um, about a trans or non-binary subject one of the first kind of fiction books to be published by a quote-unquote major publisher so Penguin and Random House and it's all about this 18th century English folk hero jailbreaker thief called Jack Shepard who is like reimagined as a trans man and it's written from the point of view of this academic who's found a manuscript which is annotated and the academic becomes as much a character as as Shepard um what else have I been reading um I mean, there are various other things which I've sort of picked up and put aside. There are numerous books in my room that I've started and not finished. Uh, Svetlana Alexievich's Chernobyl Prayer, uh, partly because I visited Chernobyl and Pripyat last year when I was doing a 
filmmaking residency. So you're Yatsu not watching the Kiev. show? I'm not watching the show at the moment. I kind of I put um, Chernobyl Prayer down uh, because it's just such an incredibly harrowing read, and mm. I, you know. Well, most of the stuff she writes about after a while, because she's such an amazing journalist, like it's just. Yeah, yes. you have to stop for a little bit and have a breather. Or so else. halfway through that, and uh, rather ambitiously started Derrida's Spectres of Marx recently. Oh. Um, but you know, reading Derrida for fun, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 yeah, I've I've made quite slow progress on that. So yeah, those are the, the things that spring to mind. But there's definitely other unfinished books lying around my bedroom at the moment. Fabulous! Thank you so much, Juliet. This was so much fun. Pleasure. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory either on iTunes and leave a review. And if you'd like to access all sorts of extra content and show your support, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other. <laughs>